0: A vision without execution is just a dream. Welcome to Transformative Experts with Chris Elias. Like the show title says, Chris speaks with transformative experts and business leaders who share their successes, failures, and leadership tips that will help you transform your business into a success story. Now, here's your host,
1: Chris Elias. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Transformative Experts. Today, we have assembled some of the most inspirational stories I've heard to date on the show. Today, you're going to hear from Kara Richardson-Whiteley, TJ Nelligan, and Letitia Baca. All of their stories of adversity and perseverance speak for themselves. So I hope you enjoy. Thank you for having me. So, um, you know, we always like to start kind of with a little bit of the life story, right? And and your life story is your story in this particular case, and it's I think it's also an interesting one. Um, you know, let's let's share with with the audience. You know, how do how do you become an expert and a coach? And I'll let you describe a little bit more about the specifics of of, of what you do. Not steal any of the thunder, but uh, mm-hmm. but where where did it all start for you? Let's start at the beginning.
2: Yeah, sure. Thanks for asking. Well, where I ended is I'm an extended sizes or plus size advisor for corporations. And how that all began is that um, I'm somebody who for all of my life has lived in a larger body, has been fat, however you want to call it. Right. Um, I first started struggling with my weight. At least the first memory that I have is when I was nine years old and um, my parents were on the verge of divorce and I remember hiding in the pantry and binging. Um, the sounds of the chewing would drown out my parents' screaming, and this developed a pattern for me where I would eat to take away the sting of things that were not comfortable and it developed a pattern where i was um binging as a way of coping it got worse when i was sexually assaulted when i was 12. um you know i was a latchkey kid a lot of things happened after my parents divorce where this is the way that i lived and what i learned over time was that you know and now in my adulthood and i've done a lot of work in my wellness and my recovery um, from binge eating disorder is that that pattern of behavior, not just pushed away bad things, but it pushed away the good. And also I didn't develop a lot of coping mechanisms for the stress of life. And so in my adult life, I have had to reframe and rechart my journey that wasn't so reliant on comfort wasn't so reliant on, on, you know, pushing away uncomfortable things. And so I think the the moment that really turned things around for me, or at least one of those moments. I mean, everybody, everyone, everyone wants that Oprah aha moment where it all changes right, and everything right, is right. There. not normal. That's that's not the way the world works. But one moment that shines bright in my memory of of changing was that I got one of those adventure travel catalogs in the mail, the kind with glossy pictures sure. of Machu Picchu and Kilimanjaro in the Alps. You get those, right? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> we get those too. Yeah. And I, I remembered holding it in my hands and seeing the photos and, you know, you know, and I know that like the photos are never as amazing as the real thing. And I said to myself, I'm going to do that when I lose weight. And I realized that I said that about everything, everything was followed by that clause. Like I'm gonna buy myself a whole new wardrobe when I lose weight. I'm gonna go to the doctors when I lose weight. And I can't tell you how many people I've met around the country in my speaking engagements who've said that very same thing. And I realized that all of my worth, all of my joy was based on this this ideal that I couldn't do the things that I wanted to do. I couldn't be the person I wanted to be simply because the size of my body. And I thought, well, that's, that's rubbish, <laughs> right? I, I want to be in these pictures. I want to have some forward momentum. And so I headed to the, the, you know, outdoor store. And at the time, you know, this is, you know, more than 10 years ago, extended sizes weren't as they are now.
3: No, I couldn't, no, even, I mean,
2: Even the socks were too tight, right? Um, The only thing that I could come away from the store with was a, you know, a Nalgene bottle, the kind of water bottle that if I and the water bottle fell up the side of the mountain, it would survive, but I wouldn't. So I needed one of those, right? And I got the 50 Hikes of New Jersey book. And um, because I live in, I live in Summit, New Jersey. And so I started checking off the list. And I have to tell you, those first 20 minute hikes were terrifying. They were absolutely scary. And I know that they're the kind of hikes that like a preschool class would do. Right. And I live in New Jersey. So like, if I got lost, even though I imagined I'd be lost for like three days in the woods, if I got lost, I'd like end up in a target parking lot. I mean, really. Right. (laughs) And there are
1: no mountains to climb really over there.
2: There there are some, but you know, on a scale of the world, you know, I'd be fine. Yeah. Um, But the, you know, it just, it shows me this, this journey of, you know, the journey to the customer journey, the journey to wellness is really complicated and paved with a lot of road bumps, you know, where I had to actually physically push myself to be in the place of nature to move forward. And what I realized was that nature and the outdoors was the exact opposite of that life I had of binging. It was, you know, instead of pushing everything away, Being in the woods was pulling everything in and that meant, um, you know, taking in the fear of what's going on down the trail. What I might see, what I might encounter, would I be able to do it? It's feeling everything from the the mud kind of sucking my boots down into the ground, seeing and feeling the air and the canopy above me. And it was just so encompassing and real and beautiful that one step led me to another. I mean, it led me to Camel's Hump, which is a mountain that had left me winded in the past. And I, I went to the top of that. I went to the bottom of the Grand Canyon and thankfully back up again without the assistance of a mule. I, you know, and I started to move my body in a way that made me feel strong and powerful and so I decided upon Kilimanjaro and Kilimanjaro is the highest mountain that you can climb without the assistance of ice axes and ropes and supplemental oxygen.
1: As somebody who's, who's struggled with obstacles yourself, what are some of the best ways to break through and, and, and tell me a little bit about your support structures for, for getting there. Cause nobody does this alone. I don't think.
2: Oh, absolutely. I think one of the most powerful things for me in the beginning was to, put it on the page and, and share it. And so the first steps for me was sharing my struggle with my journal. Uh, You know, I was a journalist, so writing really comes natural to me. And so when I saw my own story, um, with, you know, on paper, I was like, Oh, that makes sense. And, um, you know, I, I remember waking up at five in the morning and putting, you know, getting my laptop out. My babies were sleeping you know, and, and just writing it out. And when I went through that process of, of writing, I started to connect the dots. And that's what I love about the magic of being a writer is that sometimes you don't know what you're going to write before you start. Or you might have an idea like you want to write a scene. Yeah. And suddenly the past starts to make sense you know, the next level of that, and of course, something that I was doing in tandem was working with a mental health care professional. In my case, because I, um, you know, I live with binge eating disorder, or recovered from binge eating disorder, however you want to frame it or say it, um, I work with an eating disorder specialist. Um, You know, if that's something that you Feel like you're struggling with eating recovery center has you know masters level clinicians or sure. if, if an eating disorder they can help guide you through that if you go to eatingrecovery.com. Um, but it was really important to enlist a support team, a mental health care professional, to help pull some of those stories out. It's uncomfortable, it's difficult, um, but so worth it to move forward because, you know, when I think back of, you know, my time, especially when I was a brand new mom and, you know, I did a lot of the things that most people are supposed to do, right. Right. I had a job. I took the recycling out. I volunteered. I did, you know, I did a lot of those things, but I was consumed about my thoughts about my body and about food and I would, I would, I would binge and then I would replace the food that I binged so that nobody knew I was really struggling. And it was just this 24-7 mental weight upon me. And um, it wasn't until I started to see a therapist, an eating disorder specialist, who who guided me through some coping mechanisms. And And sometimes, you know, what's interesting about therapy and any kind of mental health journey, no matter what you're struggling with is the, the the tips that you come up with the things that help the most aren't necessarily like you laying down on a couch and a therapist talking you through it it's it's like time management for me it was like time management and and learning how to have difficult conversations because that's something again i didn't learn in my in my Youth, because I was constantly binging all the time. And so being vulnerable in the presence of someone you can trust and who can give you guidance is really, really important. You know, I was tripping over things and and feeling absolutely uncomfortable in my body and in my mind. And one of the greatest lessons about Kilimanjaro is that if something's bothering you, you need to deal with it right away. So whether it's a blister you know a hot spot that's burning into your ankle well you need to put something on top of it um you know if you're thirsty you need to drink because you're already dehydrated if you know you're cold you put on a jacket and if something is bothering your mind then you need to get it out and when we were finally at a, at a breaking point i took my head guide aside and i said hey you know last night i heard you were talking about me what were you saying And he said, you know, the other porters and guides, they don't believe that you're going to make it to the top. And so I said, well, what what did you say? Did you make any bets? Because you should. Bet on me. Bet on me. And that hallmark moment, that moment that just kind of was me speaking up for what I needed in the moment was such a moment of change in how I saw myself. But also speaking up for how I deserve to be treated uh, on this mountain, that my team should be rooting for me, not pulling me down. And and that's the way it should be. You know, you should be supporting one another as they're as they're doing great things, as they're pushing their bodies, as they're performing. And so it was a pivotal moment for me to also ask for what I need. And as an extended size, you know, plus size adventurer out there, you know, sometimes I do need to ask about the size of a kayak or, um, you know, what's the weight limit for these kinds of things. But also, you know, I also can ask companies to, to start increasing their extended sizes lines because, you know, less than 20% of apparel is made in plus sizes, which is just mind boggling. Can you, can you imagine that? Well, but yeah, like, when
1: It's, it's, it's unbelievable when, when the statistic is so high on on the plus size part of it. And so, so uh, I'm sorry, so I don't want to interrupt your story. Let's finish the story, but I do want to dive into the business part of it and how you're helping companies out with this.
2: Yeah. And no, I mean, the point, the point of the story is just that, you know, you can, um, you can have these uncomfortable situations but you can also stand in your power you can also speak up for what yeah. you need and that that was the big moment for me and really it's one of the cornerstones of what i do now as an influencer as an advisor is speaking up for what the market is asking for it's speaking up for the needs it's it's sharing with corporations about how to how to market to the extended sizes market in, in a way that's just not that token and, and just typical way of showing somebody in a larger body in a mat so is not working and, and there's other ways to do it.
1: Yeah. You know, so, um, have you found it? How, how easy has it been for you to go then and find the business? I mean, to, to, you've started this, this, um, this advisory serv- services organization to do this for companies. Are companies, uh, at least, you know, obviously L.L. Bean, since you've worked with them, but some of the others, are they um, are they really open to this? Are companies approaching you? Are they are they realizing it's there, or is there still a cell that you you know you need to be doing this for these people?
2: Right. Um, well, I think that there's there's two factors that are going on right now. There's and, and I, I actually just wrote about this in a piece um, for outside business journalists just about to come out about the extended size market. That there's a moral case to this. Right. There's a moral case of providing um, extended sizes uh, gear or access. Right. So it goes beyond clothing. It could be an airline seat. Mm-hmm. Right. Or um, a kayak or, uh, you know, just any kind of seating at a restaurant i mean there's so many things and ways to welcome this market that's the majority of 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 americans um so there's the moral case of that but there's also the business case you know why why have you why is your ideal customer avatar tiny (laughs) why is it because that's not true it's not true because being plus size is average so you know if you were to just you know, put a few more pounds on your uh, ideal client, you know, you might have a better connection with, um, with the market. I mean, companies like Airy have had significant growth over the past several years because they have really pushed this idea of the extended sizes being as important, if not more than straight sizes. Right. And they year over year they've had growth because they're not, marketing based on this illusion of what could be their marketing based on values, mm-hmm. They're marketing based on inclusion and inclusion is the, the next factor that I think that, you know, it's starting to open up that it's not just the color of skin. It's not just about ability, but it's about sizes of bodies. Also, you know, are you welcoming these people to your brand? Because there is opportunity, there is money to be spent. There is, you know, there, and, and most importantly, people get to enjoy the same things and, and have the kinds of adventures that we all deserve to have.
0: Is your company or team struggling to achieve the results you would like? Optimize your life, your team, and your organization through clarity, purpose, and action. At Nexecute, we have over 100 years of combined experience leading organizations and coaching individuals to achieve their vision. We design a customized approach to ensure successful execution and optimize your results. Connect better. Grow better. Take the next step and give us a call for a free consultation with your host, Chris Elias. 888-378-8808. That's 888-378-8808. Keep the conversation going. Follow your host on Instagram at Chris Elias Official and on Facebook and Twitter at The Chris Elias to discuss your own business transformations and get real world advice on culture, leadership and execution. See you there. It's time to transform your business with the help of the execution culture co-written by your host, Chris Elias. Make your company smarter, faster and stronger with real world advice on culture leadership and execution the execution culture available now on amazon this is transformative experts with chris elias if you have a question or a comment about the show please send an email to listener at transformative now back to transformative experts
1: TJ's been a big name in sports for a lot of years. Um, welcome, TJ. Glad to have you with us today.
4: Great to be here with you.
1: So TJ is in um, warm and, well, hopefully sunny Florida today. So again, the power of Zoom, we get to do things remote. We don't have to be all in the same studio in the same place. But TJ's, TJ's got a really great story, a, 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 a story of, of, you know, really building up a, a pretty incredible career and then having his life changed. Um, and so without giving too much of it away, you know, let's just start with the history. Let's start with a career piece of it. TJ, would you share with our listeners your story?
4: Sure, I'd be happy to. I um, I spent about seven years on Wall Street and really enjoyed it, um, but found that I didn't really have a passion and it wasn't a lifestyle. You know, over the years, I've spoken to a lot of colleges and university students, and I always say, you can't be the best in your industry unless you have a passion for it and Sunday night you're not sweating going, I don't wanna go to that job. It's not a job, it's a life. Um, So I spent seven years on Wall Street and then ironically, I was watching Regis Philbin's TV show and there's a guy named Roy Engelbrecht who used to run the LA Forum way back in the day. And this is in the late uh, 89 or so. And I see he has this Sportscasters Camps of America. So I go, stay at Loyola Marymount University Uh, in the dorms. 90% of the people there were college students, obviously, that wanted to be sportscasters. And I was 29 years old. I was probably one of the older people there. And they taught you how to do play-by-play for basketball and baseball, taught you how to do the ESPN studio type thing. And as we took some of the classes, I said, well, I'm not quitting my Wall Street job. And my wife was pregnant with our first child, Sean, at the time. To go to Little Silver, New Mexico to make a 100 bucks a game and try to work my way up to become Bob Costas one day. Yeah. So I went and I met with the athletic director at St. Peter's University, which is in the Metro Atlantic Conference still to this day, and told him, I'll give you $1,000 for your radio rights. And we'll put all the games on. Last year, you only had 10 games on. And he looked at me like, like, are you out of your mind? Like, why would you do this? Do you have all the equipment? I didn't even know what equipment you needed, but I said, of course. Oh, well, of course, sir. Of course I do. So me and my buddy Joe ended up doing all the games that year. We did them for a second year. And during that time frame, I got introduced to host communications, which was the leader in college sports marketing representing the HUSU who of colleges, universities, conferences, and the NCAA final four and all the NCAA championships. So I ended up starting the host office in New York City for Jim Host, who's a legend in the business, and ended up working there for 10 years and then started my own company, which I had for 15 years. So working for Jim was great. He'd come up and we'd walk around the streets in New York City. And I always called him coach because he spent so much time and was so generous to teach me the business. And I, was at, I ended up being in charge of all the national sales and calling on a who's who of Fortune 500 companies from GM and Amex and uh, Nabisco, Hershey, and would sign them up to be NCA corporate partners. So I ended up going to 25 Final Fours in a row, had just the most magnificent time and never worked a day in my life since that day I started there in 1990. Um, and it was, it was just an amazing thing. And that's why I tell people all the time, you know, my friend, Buddy Velasco who was friends with my son, Sean, lived next door to us in Montville. When he started one bakery that he got from his father making cupcakes, did you ever think the Food Network would come along and he'd be a household name worldwide? No, he did what he had a passion for. And the end result just happened to be he was the best at what he did. So when that technology came along and the Food Network and all the different platforms, he took it up to the next level. And that's really what I did was we would represent colleges, universities, you know, uh, and really just had a ball bringing in revenue for them. And it was a great niche back then. So 24 years, I, 25 years I spent in the business, but when I first got in, it wasn't the multi-billion dollar business it is today. There was nobody selling sponsorships on a local level for that college and university. You know, most of the people that worked in the athletic department charged with bringing in sponsors wanted to be an athletic director in fact i don't think in 25 years i ever met one person that worked in an athletic department with the word sales in their business card yeah so it became a great business where the colleges and universities outsourced all those rights to us tv radio signage you know all the sponsorships and we built a huge business because of the demographics of college sports you know they're highly educated white collar jobs, making a lot of income. So the demographics is what corporate America wants to reach. And that's why the NCAA basketball tournament on CBS and TNT brings in so much money because you're reaching that niche audience that's very difficult to reach.
1: So, you know, you, you, you built this tremendous success. You were a well-known name out there in the industry. And, um, you, you made a, you made mention of the comment that, um, that, you know, early on, you know, you, you, commented that your wife was, was pregnant with your son, Sean. So Sean comes along and, uh, Sean, you know, for the, for the audience is a special needs kid. Um, you know, d- tell me a little bit about Sean in the, er- in the early years.
4: Well, the early years are very difficult for parents because he wasn't born and they didn't just say, oh, you have a child with Down syndrome or this or that. We took home what we thought was a perfectly healthy baby boy. And over the next three or four months, things started to unravel. He had seizures. We went to doctors and hospitals and he was put on medications. And about two years later, he was still trying to learn to walk. He's going to physical therapy. He's going to speech therapy. Uh, and we went to one of the 4 uh, neurologists in the world. And this doctor actually wrote the textbooks that people study to become neurologists. And we went in there and he examined Sean for about an hour. And then uh, my mother stayed with Sean in the waiting room. And his mom, Maggie, and I went in to see him. And he basically just very bluntly, matter-of-factly told us that Sean had intellectual disabilities. He would never live a normal life probably never going to college or holding down a job and won't fit in great in society and mainstream in your community because these different disabilities are gonna be more pronounced the older he gets. So that was my second worst day in my life. And basically over the next few years until he was about eight or 10 years old, it was all physical therapy and speech therapy and all these different kinds of things that are very difficult for the parents. And all of a sudden, he got into his teen years, and he started to laugh about everything and love life, was the happiest human being you've ever met, and started getting involved with Special Olympics. Um, When he was about five years old, uh, a fraternity brother of mine from Richmond had lunch with me in New York City, and he happened to be on the board of Special Olympics New Jersey. And I told him all about Sean, and he said, you need to come down to the College of New Jersey for the Summer Games. You can't believe this organization. So I reluctantly went, I had Sean on my back in a backpack cause he was still a frail little thing. And we walked around this campus and we watched people swimming and track and field and softball and bocce ball. And they were all smiling and they were all happy and they were all hugging each other. And I said, wow, Sean can be an athlete. This is amazing. This is unbelievable. So I joined the board of Special Mix New Jersey in 1995-ish and was on that until 2011 when we started the board for the special olympics usa games which i chaired and we raised a lot of money for new jersey and then we raised over 20 million for the special olympics usa games which was at the time the highest profile national games in the history of special olympics north america so that was a great run and it got our entire family involved in special olympics his mom maggie his sisters maura and megan And sometimes during this time, you realize Sean's dreams weren't shattered. My dreams as a first-time parent were shattered for what I thought I was entitled to and Sean was entitled to. But he didn't feel entitled at all. In fact, he was perfectly happy to be alive. He was the happiest guy you ever saw. And he didn't focus on what he couldn't do because he didn't know what he couldn't do. He only knew what he could do. And there comes a day in their development where you look at, this young man or this young woman, and you don't see the disabilities anymore. You only see what they can do and what they can achieve, and that takes a while to get there for parents, but that's a great day because now you realize, why should I be brokenhearted about this? This kid is the happiest human being I've ever seen, and he couldn't ride a two-wheel bike, so we got him a giant three-wheel bike that he'd drive around the beach and had a ball.
1: Yeah, and so, well. What was that moment that, that you had, um, I don't know if it was an epiphany or if it just kind of came on slowly. but what was that moment that, that you realized as a parent that that's the important shift? Uh, a friend of mine talks a lot about living in the world of, um, of abundance versus a world of scarcity, right? And so, so looking at what you have versus what you don't and, and how important that is on your outlook. Um, was, was there a moment that caused that shift or, or for you or did it kind of come over time?
4: Well, I think the one moment I remember vividly, like it was yesterday, was Sean was 12 years old and I was the chairman of the board for Special Olympics New Jersey. And there were eight or 10,000 people in the football stadium at College of New Jersey. And law enforcement raises so much money. So they're lined up on the sides. In March, 3,500 athletes. And I see Sean, for the first time, able to come in and compete and be an athlete. And I think a little tear came down my you know, face as I looked at him, I said, wow, this is a big day. And I think that day was the beginning of watching him grow and mature. And you said something earlier, which is very true. You know, I worked on Wall Street and the Michael Douglas greed is good and he who dies with the most toys wins. And you know, working my tail off to become an entrepreneur and start my own company. And that's what it was about. And then I see this young man that taught me, you know, material assets is not what he had. He had unconditional love, gratitude. You know, he had good friends and he was always present in the moment. I think that's one of the hardest things for us to learn, especially as type A people building businesses is you always say, well, I'll be grateful and I'll be happy when I get to the destination, when I get to the goal for the company in three years or five years. And the problem with that is as an entrepreneur, if we hit the goal in two years, we were hoping to get to in five, what do we do? We move the goalposts. Yeah. So we're not happy. Now we want to go again.
1: Yeah, yeah. There's, there's always kind of that, 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 t-
0: It's time to transform your business with the help of the Execution Culture, co-written by your host, Chris Elias. Make your company smarter, faster, and stronger with real-world advice on culture, leadership, and execution. The Execution Culture, available now on Amazon. Is your company or team struggling to achieve the results you would like? Optimize your life, your team, and your organization through clarity, purpose, and action. At Nexecute, we have over 100 years of combined experience leading organizations and coaching individuals to achieve their vision. We design a customized approach to ensure successful execution and optimize your results. Connect better. Grow better. Take the next step and give us a call for a free consultation with your host, Chris Elias. 888-378-8808. That's 888-378-8808. Keep the conversation going follow your host on instagram at chris elias official and on facebook and twitter at the chris elias to discuss your own business transformations and get real world advice on culture leadership and execution see you there this is transformative experts with chris elias if you have a question or a comment about the show Please send an email to listener at transformativeexperts.com now back to transformative experts good morning thank you again for
3: having me today I'm quite excited about spending the morning here with you
1: oh, I'm so glad to have you with us so um so like all of our guests letty has a great story you know we, we don't we don't just fall into the position of being a president. We don't fall into a position of, of having the respect that's carried. In. And, and, you know, there, there's always a life story that's behind it. And, and, and Letty, you know, our, our, your story is, is particularly interesting. Uh, would you please share it with our listeners?
3: Yes. Um, I'm Leticia Baca. And as, um, as mentioned, I'm the president of Liquid Organic Juices, a little bit of my background is that I'm originally from Yonkers in New York. Uh, both of my parents are immigrants. My father came from Argentina and my mother came from Dominican Republic. Growing up with my sister, uh, the household was tense uh, between financial struggles, arguments, and you know, witnessing physical abuse between my parents. It was clear from a young age that uh, my parents had high expectations of us. Um, especially when it came to our education as they sacrificed everything that they had to come here for the betterment of their children and, and their own future. And they saw education as the key to success and independence. From my mother's perspective, the financial independence uh, was from potentially a future spouse, uh, not having to depend on somebody else. And from my dad's perspective, uh, the, the freedom of, uh, of, of choosing where to work to avoid exploitative employers. Uh, that he was very key on that. Uh, we moved to Punta Cana in Dominican Republic in the early 90s in a resort uh, where both of my parents worked full-time. And while they were working, we were homeschooled and there were no other children you know, to socialize with. Uh, so my parents eventually divorced for all the best reasons uh, when I was eight years old. And from that moment on, it felt like my life changed forever. Uh, it was just never the same.
1: Were you already in Queens uh, when, when that divorce happened or did that happen while you're still down in the Dominican Republic?
3: We were in Dominican Republic at the time. Got it. Okay. Um, it was a day that I'll never forget. Uh, we were doing a fun photo shoot for the boutique that was in the lobby of the resort. Uh, back then the resort was very, very tiny village. Um, and they wanted to bring some exposure, and we were the only kids around to model their kids' clothing. So we were out in the beach, and then suddenly and very abruptly, one of my father's colleagues comes and gets us. We were in bathing suits; uh, we hadn't even changed yet. We didn't have any time. We were rushed into the car, and by the time we got to our little villa. Um, it was very clear. My parents had gotten into a very big argument. All of our clothes was in the bed of another truck. Um, we weren't even given time to put some clothes on, baby suits and all. We were put in a car. My mom, you know, got in the car with us and we drove off to, uh, the Capitol, which was about six hours away. And not a word was said in that car ride. Um, Fast forward a little bit, um, after a few months, uh, my mother finally decides that it would be best to move to Puerto Rico, which was the Island next to Dominican Republic. She had friends, she had some leads for jobs and she was starting to figure out how to rebuild her life. So she felt it was the best option for us, for herself and for the family as it was very clear. My dad was not going to be involved in our lives financially or physically or emotionally. He had checked out. Um, while we were very appreciative of a better uh, emotional stability in the house, you know, having removed my dad from, from the situation, um, I will say that we did struggle financially for, for, for a number of years. Um, we, would, uh, we lived in Section 8 uh, for a couple of years. We were in a cockroach-infested 400-foot apartment apartment. For several years uh, which is not great especially as we hit our teenage years that was uh, kind of a recipe for for disaster Um, I was also bullied for most of my middle school I was a late bloomer um, so having people focus on what I had not developed or developed gave me a lot of body issues so, and I'm, I'm sure that from their perspective, I came off as a little odd with these fantastical stories about living in New York and destination resorts, and here I am speaking these stories from a Section 8 apartment. It, it must have looked distorted to them. So, I'm sure I was an odd, you know, student, and, and I didn't quite know how to fit in. Um, we also had a lot of secrets at home, you know, from the physical abuse to you know the things that we were witnessing at home so we never felt in a position where we could speak about what was happening in the home so whenever we would get questions about when are you celebrating your birthday or or things like that that were more in a personal like you're now you're trying to come over we would panic like we would panic we did not allow any of our friends the little ones the, the little friends that we had made to come home because we didn't want anybody to sort of unveil who who we really were and what was happening at home. There was that shame and also that responsibility that you don't want the honor of your family to be tainted. Um, and it also felt like a betrayal to my mother who was trying to already her very best to move on with her life to bring someone home that might, that might judge us. Um, eventually, um, It it, it became very apparent to my mother that she wasn't going to uh, strive or reach the career goals that she had set for herself in Puerto Rico. The opportunities just weren't there and they weren't opening up. And so on another leap of faith, we got on a plane uh, December 1998 and we moved to Miami with we sold everything that we had and the little bit that we could, you know, transfer over to Miami, which took about two months to arrive. Um, you know, we took it over with us uh, for those two months. We slept on the floor, uh, nothing more than just you know blankets and sheets, uh, you know, until our furniture arrived. Um, eventually, um, as as we are more acquainted with the city. Um, and we start expanding, riding the bus to get to see Miami Beach and other areas. It really felt like an expansion of possibilities, you know, where, you know, the opportunities no longer seem so limited. It, it, you know, it just the potential in such a big city to become anything that you want to was very prevalent. And I remember my mother telling us there was a song that she would sing us all the time. It was uh, it's originally in Spanish, but in English, it translates to if I can break any wall, eventually there's no limitation. And she would sing that to us. Oh, I might cry (laughs) over and over again. And it felt in that moment like such a small moment. But looking back at it in hindsight, it it was such um, an inspiration to to us that our circumstances were temporary. And that it was, we had the power to remove any barrier that could, you know, limit our potential. And that was, it was um, very touching as an adult now to remember back on, on those times.
1: You really had so many opportunities throughout your life to to just walk away, to succumb, to not. Have, I mean, okay, you apply to all these schools and they turn you down. Turn you down. That's got to be shock to confidence. But yet, you continually seem to look forward. And do you think a lot of it traces back to just that consistent upbringing that there's no there there are no barriers.
3: I agree. Uh, not only the altruism and the message, but I think the values and the work ethic that I saw in my parents that when they had a goal, like my mother, when she had a goal to move us, despite not having any means to do it, she figured it out. There was no excuse. There was no superhero that was going to come to save us. You know, Santa Claus didn't even come a few years. I mean, we did not believe in mythical creatures of any kind. We knew that it was within us, but we also believed that the power was within us. We just needed to be more assertive about it. And I totally agree that this this whole remove the barriers um, and pursuing education as my key to solidify myself was absolutely what turned the page for me and what really Began the, yeah. the the start of my executive career.
1: So this is a, this is a really great example of what it means to be accountable because, you know, we talk about accountability as you know taking control of a situation, taking control of your life, stepping up. So 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 whenever things happen, and things happen to everybody all the time. You you have a choice, you, you know, and and some of it ha- unconsciously, it's easy to become a victim. It's easy to point fingers. It's easy to to make excuses. The hard thing is to to set those aside and to focus yourself on your future. And you were raised to believe that. I mean, you know, I, you know, people come from all walks of life, but your situation was was similar to a lot of people in this world who may choose to just let the world be their excuse, may choose to not go forward. And so one of the things actually I, I'm, I'm concerned with about our society today is I think we're quicker to point fingers than we are to find solution. And and that's a very, very negative place. And yet, because of your upbringing, because of your philosophy, I mean, I mean certainly, I mean, come on, come on, coming from a broken home where there was abuse and all those things, you had every probably excuse in the world to to still be you know, um, unsuccessful today, yet you've driven yourself. You keep finding, you kept looking and I don't think it's, it's too late for anybody to learn that. I mean, we can do that later in life too. I mean, but it's, it's about a choice. It's about a choice to move
4: forward.
3: At that point, I didn't recognize that I was in charge of my narrative that maybe came later in life. I think I was coming from a survival perspective Yeah, and that I needed to survive. I needed to level up. I needed to ensure we never went back to a section eight apartment. Um, I look at a cockroach today and I start crying because they would crawl on us at night. We literally had blankets in the tropics, a hundred degrees, and there was no AC inside, but a fan. And I still would would sleep with blankets and and cover myself because I didn't want the cockroaches to touch me. So it comes from, you start fighting because you just you just you start replaying those moments in your life, and you need to do everything that's possible to never go back to that place. And so, if my mother is telling me that the key to success is to pursue education, is to pursue this, you know, no life comes with a with a guide. You know, I, I, I that's and, and and maybe that's the first time I realize I'm going to have to come up with my own creative solution for my life because nobody's going to give me the answers. So these, these things start, on, you know, unveiling themselves, revealing themselves, um, you know, over time. And, and it almost took like a step at a time for me to start recognizing and putting those pieces together. Um, so once I, eventually I complete my master's degree in supply chain, Um at that point, I'm not only recognized within my own company, but even other places as I go to expositions and I go to summits, other people start taking notice uh, of me. And I'm thinking, I'm onto to something here. I'm going to fake it until I make it. I'm going to throw keywords out there and I'm going to talk to the smartest people. If I am ever the smartest person in the room, I need to walk away from that room. I need to be with everybody who's smarter, wiser, stronger, confident those are the people I need to be around with. You know, I need to be listening. I don't don't need to be the one talking. People talking are not learning anything. So I wanted to be in a position where I was actually listening and absorbing. And that will help shape me. But in particular, there was one mentor, which was the owner of the company, that had a very compassionate and very empathetic approach to leading. That I hadn't seen, especially in the finance industry, at least in my years of experience there, um, that I hadn't seen before. And I could see the transformation or the difference, I should rather, you know, rather that when employees are following a person because they feel uh, vulnerable or because of power, And another one is when people follow your ideas, your ideology, Your they connect the passion of what they're doing to the to the to the overall goal of the company. And it almost seems like people over profits, although the profits kept pouring in, the more the better we treated people. And so I began diving into books about self-development you know, empathetic leadership. I finally defined myself as a servant leader. At that point, I wasn't yet a C-suite executive, but I was the youngest executive to sit at the table. Um, and I had no family connection. It was just wits, guts, and just bravery to just own my chair and, and and make it as that, even though inside I felt fragile and I felt inexperienced, but in the outside, I would never allow anybody to... Um, to call me out
1: on it. Uh, it it's, it's such a testament to the power of culture, right? I mean, we talk all the time about how treating people and, and is important. And this, this concept of the better you treated people, the better the profits. I wish I could get that point across to more, more leaders. Well, I hope you've loved this episode as much as I do. And I hope you feel inspired to tackle the obstacles in your life with determination. I know you'll come through the other side stronger. Don't forget to head to transformativeexperts.com to be part of the conversation. That's this week's episode, everyone. Thanks for listening.
0: Thank you for joining Chris Elias for this week's edition of Transformative Experts. We hope you'll tune in again next Monday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time and 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. And catch our weekly replay on the Voice America Influencers Channel, Sundays at 10 a.m. Pacific Time and 1 p.m. Eastern Time. Have a good week.